Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam, as always, here with Andy, and Andy, I've got a straight-down-the-middle version of a uh, I- I'm getting old story, just thing to relate to that's that's come about lately. Oh, um, good. I've been experiencing more and more of these lately, so do tell. It's just the worst. Like, every human that has ever ex- walked planet Earth, I'm trying to get ready for summer season, like... You know, you go out to the pool, you go out to like a social events, like you, you can't wear a sweater to everything. So you got to get, you just got to lose a little bit of that winter bod, sure. right? Um, it's, it's a tale as old as time. I was planning on doing that, but I literally stretched too hard the other day. Like I, I stretched on the couch and I f- felt a pain go through my shoulder and oh. now I'm like having a hard time lifting weights. So yeah, even like getting on the rower is like not that great. So yeah, I'm I'm experiencing the old head conundrum of, you know, I have to basically eat perfectly in order to see any results because I can't really work out that much. I can like go for long walks yeah. and then like eat well and that's about it, which isn't really boding very well for your boy the last few weeks. Dude, so I'm I'm really struggling here. It is uh I I think back to like when I was young and I could just inhale total garbage food and not put on any weight and I just wish I could just go back and just go to that that younger version of me and just be like, dude, just Eat half bullshit, and you could just be ripped as fuck, and we'll feel so good. <laughs> like, uh, I, I have had that daydream so many times. You know, you know what really I think worked in our favor that we didn't take advantage of is the fact that there was there wasn't Taco Bell cantinas back then. Oh, fair. Like, imagine if if we were you know twenty years old and we had Taco Bell cantinas, that would have been dangerous. Yeah, Taco Bell was definitely not on their cantina swag yet when I was darkening their door. They were doing that healthy campaign where they had that chef come in. They had those commercials that was like trying to sell us salads. Yeah, except <laughs> it's like I'm not going to go to Taco Bell for a the, salad. The thing about Taco Bell in our locale was that it was attached to a Pizza Hut, so like any Swagger. any attempts they had at health were quickly over overshadowed by 18 year old me being like, "Oh, tight! They have a meal that's a personal pan pizza and breadsticks. I'll get two of those, and then I'll have two pizzas and two orders of breadsticks." <laughs> I used to go play basketball at the rec center for like three hours and I'd go do insanity sometimes on top of that just cause I was, I, I was at the stage where I was really enjoying going for runs and stuff. Yeah. Like I was doing five K's and all that. And then I would almost daily go to the Taco Bell and pizza hut combination off of 50th yep. and university and yeah, do the same thing. Get the personal pizza, get the breadsticks, get a huge Coke, and get, like, two tacos on top Oh, yeah, of and just house and... that shit like it was nothing, dude. We lived in an apartment with a Cane's in the parking lot, and I looked fine. Like, I don't, that would Jeez. kill me now. I'd be dead in a month. Like, and you had the Noodles and Company, which was oh, super dude. hot fire back when Noodles and Company, existed. I don't know how that failed as an establishment. I loved that shit. I've literally never had a bad meal at Noodles no, and Company. No, it's all flames. Like when, we, when they had that one at our old office in Austin, Hell that yeah. was Fuego University. Absolutely. So, um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. I know, know we normally get into superlatives and rankings towards the end of our pod. Today, we're talking about. Obviously, Northman, the film that just came out by Robert Egger. I feel like I made you watch it. Maybe you were planning to, but... I was definitely planning to watch it. I was not, like, planning to take time out of my work day to go watch it. Yeah, I I, I forced your hand a little bit there. I, I watched it with um, one of my buddies actually just had his, his, his first child, and before he had his first kid, he was like, I kind of want to have, like, a last bros night. So got a few guys together, we went out, got a few drinks, and then watched Northman, and... I didn't realize that Robert Eggers from The Lighthouse and The Witch had had done this film, and 
I realized that right before I walked in and who was in the movie and stuff. And dude, I was totally blown away. I said, Andy, you've got to drop what you're doing and, and you got to go see this film. And did it kind of live up to all the hype that I was pressing upon you in the group chat? Or it did. Were just initial thoughts. Yeah. So initial thoughts. One, I'm going to definitely see this movie again. Um, any lesser movie would have been Hell ruined yeah. for me as an experience because I did have to go see it in the middle of the work day. And like, one, the only theaters around me that were showing this movie were like Regal Cinema, Cinemark type beat thing, and I have not been yeah. to one of those in years. And man, I remember why now. Those fucking theaters suck ass, and I was <laughs> missing everything about like Alamo, iPick, etc. I love those theaters so You're much. You're such a movie theater snob. I am, dude. I've gotten too accustomed to like comfortable chairs, like space between me and other people, like a small crowd as opposed to a huge one, that kind of thing. But the other thing was, about 10 minutes into this movie, like a pretty serious work issue arose and so like i was working between like from my cell phone i was like watching this movie while also like sending out like probably i probably sent like 30 emails over the course of watching this movie and had to get up at one point and go into the lobby and get on a phone call i'm sure you're adding to the cinemark experience of just like talking and using yourself well luckily there was like this was at like two o'clock in the afternoon on a wednesday so there was no one else in this theater there's like one other person so it wasn't the end of the world but It, it obviously it's impossible for that not to significantly impact the quality of the movie going experience and especially this movie like this movie deserves your undivided attention and it was still fucking amazing yeah. um one thing i'm struck by immediately is like we've seen other directors kind of like have this immediate rise to immediate prominence um robert eggers is He's come out of the gates just, like, on a, on a super ridiculous winning streak. Like, obviously, we've talked about The Lighthouse a little bit before. The Witch is an incredible masterpiece. And so I think the danger of a director like that, and we saw this with, like, M. Night Shyamalan, is that you can be christened after doing movies that kind of are ne- not necessarily gimmicky, but, like, have a, a very specific thing about them that makes them your sure. tone. And so... What I loved almost immediately was that I could tell that this was Robert Eggers' most, like, I don't want to, this is a weird term, but, like, this is his most, like, standard movie. Like, this is a very movie movie, and it is not, (laughs) it's not like The Lighthouse, where it's, like, shot in a weird aspect ratio, it's not all shot in black and white. That's like an art house film. And The Witch is also very, very different in its own right, too. And this movie, I think he really wanted to kind of throw something down the middle and show that he could do uh, a very traditional style of filmmaking in its own right. Not that it isn't stylized and not that you can't tell that this is a Robert Eggers project. The other thing about this is this harkens back to a very particular time in filmmaking. We used to have movies like Lawrence of Arabia or Ben-Hur that were these like epic, large scale, like big budget historical masterpieces. Right. But brought like kind of a spectacle to the idea of something of of historical like significance, and we've seen those movies kind of turn into these like horrible CGI fests, like Gods of Egypt and shit has kind of become like Ugh. the last after like the Gladiator and like uh, Saving Private Ryan and things like that. We kind of devolved into this like large scale battle sequences were done via mostly CGI and things like that. And this movie is really, I feel like kind of a harken back to those like beautifully done artistic character, heavy historical battle spectacle of scale projects, but are just done so masterfully 
that they shed a new light on whatever the subject matter is. And I'll add as my final initial thought here that Viking stuff has been very, very popular recently. We've seen, I think, with between like the show Vikings on the History Channel, which has been incredibly popular, the incredibly successful video game series God of War, which recently took a turn into Viking stuff. The latest Assassin's Creed game is Viking motif. Parts of Game of Thrones are a little Viking-ish in their own way. Yeah, yeah, with like the North of the Wall exactly. stuff. Exactly, yeah. and so... I think there's been like a renewed interest in Viking culture, etc. And I think, and this might be an overstatement, hyperbole, but I think this is kind of like the definitive piece of Viking media. I think this does such an incredible job showing us so many aspects of Viking culture. And I'm not going to tell you that it's not violent, it's not brutal, it definitely is. But I think so much of the media and cultural interest around Vikings and Norsemen kind of mythology centers around their barbarity, like the raids and Viking war bands. And this has all of that, but also shows us like the culture and aspects of the kind of the anthropological study of this, of the Scandinavian people. Yes. And I felt like that Mm -hmm. added so much depth to this film that could have otherwise been lost especially for a movie that is this movie's two and a half hours long and yet moves with an incredibly frenetic pace like it feels like you're moving forward yeah. at all times it never slows down it's awesome so we can start there but those are my initial thoughts so i'd love to hear yours as well it it, it never slows down and there's also never really a b plot no it, it doesn't there's no like asides it feels like everything that happens is very intentional and is needed for to advance the story advance our main character which is rare is really rare in a two and a half hour movie. I feel like so many movies that come out these days, even the historical epics, feel like they need to have subplots. It kind of reminds me of on our when we were kind of previewing this episode last week, and I was saying it kind of reminds me of the way it shot of a Wes Anderson. I was just, I was really just referring to some of the like directly in front of you shots, coupled with the long shots. It reminded me of a Wes Anderson, but I think the more I the more I've sat on it. It's more of the movie 1917 that came out yeah. uh, about a year ago mm-hmm. about World War One, where it's, it more focuses on the long shots. It's extremely character driven and it is extremely intentional in the way it sets up the scenes and the way it sets up the I would almost say like the historical accuracy that that was a huge part of Robert Eggers thought process going into that. Um, if you are huge into the art of how a film is made from the set designs to the costume to the direct to the directing and cinematography and all that. I highly recommend you just YouTube the Northman or Robert Eggers because that guy went on a world tour of podcasts, you know, Vanity Fair videos, IGN, you have it. And he was very open about how he did some of these shots and stuff. And it is fascinating to go see how he did all this because they put so much effort into it, um, which we'll talk about as we go through scene by scene what happens. But the historical accuracy of, like I said, the the clothing and the way they talked and, and just like the way that these cities were portrayed and the way the people and the culture was portrayed is just so incredible. You brought up the gladiator, and I'm glad you did. I feel like the gladiator was great, but it kind of encapsulates this era of Hollywood and you know, television and everything kind of into that uh, media where we kind of took our understanding uh, of what like 1300s to 1200s England was like. And then we've kind of attached that to a million different cultures, like the Alexander movie with Colin Farrell 
and the uh, Gladiator Troy. film, and you mentioned yeah. like Gods of Egypt, Troy. They they talk like they're from. They all have British accents. England. They act strange. like it. Yeah, yeah, and just like culturally, like what they value is kind of similar to that. Um, this movie subverts that a little bit, and and kind of goes truly to what Vikings were were really like, where violence and glory really is the epicenter of their culture. You know, a quick aside. I I, I think I've told you this before. I took a a Norse myth Norse mythology class in in college. I had to take a. Um, uh, an elective for history or whatever. And so I took this one called Northern Myths and Legends. It covered everything from some of the Germanic tales like Hansel and Gretel to Odin and Thor all the way to like the Icelandic sagas like Njal Saga. Yeah. And watching this movie, it reminded me so much of those influences about how these Icelandic stories are all about like family mm-hmm. and revenge and just like how they talked even in some of these writings uh, is thematic and stuff so i again it, it you know it, it's funny you think that a movie of this production quality in today's hollywood would not be historically accurate but it absolutely was and i'm excited to get into it so to start like one thing i want to say before we get started is just like i cannot say enough as we go through this about how fucking good alexander Star- skarsgård is i think there's a good chance he wins an oscar for this movie and we've seen this man go from like this dude was doing absolute trash movies for a while this dude was in fucking battleship this dude was in godzilla vs kong dude this dude did everything terrible but i remember the first time i saw him act he was in an hbo series that i love called generation kill the year we graduated from high school about some dudes some marines that invaded iraq in 1991 it is fucking awesome and he plays a marine he's amazing in it and I was like, dude, I, how, how have I never seen this guy? And I looked him up, and obviously he's Stellan Skarsgård's kid. So I was like, oh, like it's just a nepotism thing, you know? Like he's just the son of a really well-known Hollywood actor. I wonder if I'll ever see him again. And so to see him come full circle and do this is incredible. And man, I can't wait to see what he does next because he's so fucking good. So I just wanted to say that out front before we get into this. So, okay, so The Northman. So this is based on a obviously a Norse legend and we see a lot of the influences of this story and many stories like it in classic English literature as well for those who like are you know fans of classic literature you'll see a lot of elements of Hamlet in here you'll see a lot of uh, Macbeth in here and I'll point some of those out as we go through this because I think it does uh, add to the uh, understanding of a of a more English you know, lineage literature yeah, audience to it. For sure. Uh, but obviously the Norse well, this legend is built came off first. The... Yeah. So, um, yes. Yeah. Sorry. I was, I was, <laughs> I was interrupting you. I, I wanted to be the more knowledgeable host, but yeah, you were, you were getting to the point I was going to say, which is this is based off of Amleth, which is what Hamlet. Was right. Based correct. Off of. So th- like you said, this one came right. First. And there are elements in here. Like I said, that I think are echoed not only in Hamlet, but also in Macbeth, uh, in Macbeth, there is an element of kind of like the three witches in Macbeth that give Macbeth his destiny via kind of supernatural means. And that pay, plays a large role yeah. in, in this one. There's also a little bit of, uh, like some Oedipus type stuff that's in this story, you know, kind of like your mother and like your relationship with her and those kind of things. So we'll get into all of it, but the story begins uh, with this king, and I, I struggle to know whether we should just, like, attempt to butcher all these names or just, <laughs> like, refer to them by their actor or pronounce the ones we can. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna try to—so Ethan Hawke's one is pretty hard to, to say. I, I was going to avoid that one. We can just call him, you know, 
Amleth's father yeah. or the king. Because so, I, 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 I'm with you. It's hard so, to pronounce. So the king of this particular clan returns home after like a, a you know an overseas conquest, and he's reunited with his wife and his son, who's Prince Amleth. And Prince Amleth in this will grow up to be Alexander Skarsgård, but at this point in the film, he's a young boy. Um, I just want to say right here that Ethan Hawke is in this movie for like five minutes and he fucking kills it somehow like his screen presence Uh is so fucking good they communicate so much about this king and his relationship with like his throne his people his legacy his wife his children everything with so few words and almost no screen time and that will be a recurring theme in this movie there's other characters like this we're gonna get to the the fucking latest mascot of this podcast william willem dafoe but he's another guy William that's like goat. on the in this movie for like ninety seconds and is somehow an absolute masterclass in how to be a bit part in a film. Yeah, quick note on the Will, on the Ethan Hawke stuff is you you touched about how at the beginning of this film there's I would say the first act is maybe twenty minutes. Yeah. It might maybe it's a little longer than that, but it, it doesn't feel like it, it lasts that long. And as you said, Ethan Hawke is a very small part of it. Nicole Kidman is an even smaller part about it uh, of it. And they portray so much subtlety in what you learn is the truth about their relationship. Because you see this all kind of from the perspective of young Amleth, yep. right? Where he's the kid running around. Nicole Kidman's his mother. And in the small interactions that you see with him and Nicole Kidman, he treats her like the loving mother. As you later find out, it's a little bit more complicated than that. As is the relationship with the queen and the king, as Ethan Hawke and Nicole Kidman's relationship goes. It's, it's more complicated than a loving mother and and father if you will and husband and wife so i thought that both those actors as you said did a great job of portraying the subtlety of the of the real nature of the relationship and it's almost like a a subtle foreshadowing without being very heavy uh looking back anyways it was enough of a foreshadow Dude, N- nicole kidman's another one who has just been on an absolute killing spree of great roles she is killing it right now so she's coming off of being the ricardos playing lucille ball and she delivers yeah. another powerhouse performance in this movie. And so, yeah, the, the king, uh, played by Ethan Hawke, returns home. He finally sees his wife and son again. And uh, on the eve of his return, he takes part in this spiritual ritual with his son, overseen by the court jester Helmir, who, or Hymir, who's played by the incomparable Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe, by the way, has like a monopoly on the the roles that require acting i wouldn't even say batshit crazy but being very out there well and robert eggers knows how to bring it out of him man like between this and the lighthouse i'm just like we should just only have willem dafoe act in robert eggers movies because he just absolutely knows how to get the very best out of willem dafoe it's crazy you know how people like to compliment uh nicholas cage for kind of being able to pull the crazy out i feel like william dafoe does that even better yeah that's kind of like if I if I was making a movie and I had a character that had to act a certain way, I, I keep using the word crazy, but, you know, boisterous or non-human or kind of just like extremely unhinged out there. William Dafoe would be yeah. my first person. Uh, unhinged. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So continue. So they, they, they take part in this kind of spiritual ceremony that is designed to kind of show show Amleth like a, a peek into his his destiny, a big key focus of this movie and Viking and Norse society is the presence of an inescapable destiny that everyone is kind of a path we walk in life. And obviously that is not unique to 
Nordic societies. Uh, obviously, the more Calvinist side of Western Christianity is very much on the predestination type thing. And you see many people, even in, yeah. in non-spiritual, more modern societies, say things like everything happens for a reason. But much of this story revolves around the dynamic between how much of what we do in life is, is free will, you know, what do we have to choose and what is our destiny and what is the, what happens when those things butt up against each other? Like, what do you choose? Do you choose what you are destined to yeah. do or do you choose what's best for you or what you think you should be doing? And at the beginning of the story, it's all about destiny. It's Correct. all about, I'm going to be the king someday. And then, you know, what happens after at the end of act one is his destiny is very clear, right? So Correct. Yeah. And so the next morning, like right after they do this, wild ass ceremony uh, a bunch of masked warriors show up in their village they're led by ethan hawk's like half-breed brother who's obviously not on the throne and obviously since he's like the second son he is not going to have you know the crown uh and i want to say his name is fjolnir fjolnir fjolnir, fjolnir yeah, um, i believe that one and right. so dude this dude just straight mercs everyone in the village for being loyal to ethan hawk and then murders Ethan Hawke in brutally in front of his own wife and son and then takes the queen played by Nicole Kidman and uh you know is is prepared to kill Omleth too but Omleth manages to flee on a boat and begins repeating this mantra to himself that he's going to avenge his father save his mother and kill Fjolnir like that is his just, entire mission yeah. in life that is how he's going to live his existence is by these three guiding principles. And by the way, when we talked about acting, shouts out to this kid whose name I don't have in front of me, but the kid also is just like, I love how when they first meet this kid or introduce you to this child, I think his first lines are how excited he is that his dad yep. is home. And he has a certain like brightness in his eyes and he's running around like a little kid telling everybody and stuff. And then the last scene we see him in, he's, you know, out of breath, bawling his eyes out, rowing the boat into the open ocean, just like distraught, can't believe what's happening. And so I love the juxtaposition of he has this perfect equilibrium where he's going to be the future king and he loves his mother and he loves his father. And then and then by the end of that scene, he's rowing out to sea. just he's his whole world has been shattered. So I thought that was a great touch. his name is Oscar Novak. He's 12 years old. He's from England. And he has been in exactly one other feature film. He plays young Bruce Wayne in The Batman. Wow. Yeah, isn't that nuts? I just learned that by looking at IMDb. That's crazy. Literally my favorite two movies that I've seen right? this year. Right? Like, this kid's, kid's killing it. it so. so, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, um, yes. So, Amleth is found by this band of Vikings. And given that he has devoted himself to this existence of vengeance and violence in the service of his destiny uh he is raised among them to become a berserker like you know the elite of viking warriors in their society and so we watch him we don't really watch him there's kind of a time cut here and he we see this is where alexander skarsgård emerges as grown amleth who has become such an elite, efficient killing machine that it is so yeah. fucking badass, dude. I listened to something that was really interesting. Where um, in this film, uh, and I don't have the, I don't have the sort of like Norse words for these, but uh, so there were certain kind of warriors that were attributed being a like werewolf and a werebear. And so a werewolf would be a warrior who is like a little bit smaller, quicker, cunning. A werebear would be kind of like your brute forced guy that could throw people around and use a huge heavy sword and things like that 
but there was this other kind of soldier that was a basically a i might be getting it wrong but it's a a wolf bear or a you know kind of like who we hear bear wolf that is both extremely strong and brutal but also has like quickness and cunning and that's what amleth is in this film which i thought was really really interesting it kind of it just kind of lays the groundwork for this guy is like the the apex predator fuck yeah dude well there's this awesome scene i think they showed this in the trailer but like it's a great tracking shot that they use to show like his like combat prowess where a spear is thrown in his direction and the the camera begins to pan around the side of him and he catches the spear and then throws it back and they all throw off their wolf skins and like charge into combat you're just like holy fuck so dude. This is so tight before that happens there's a crazy scene to get ready for that and that is this scene where they go into their berserker state oh, yeah, where yeah, they yeah, yeah. again amleth and his gang of new viking friends and family if you will is around this fire and there's a shaman with them and they're chanting and this is one of the first scenes that just really introduces you to how good the score of this film is where the music they used real horns and horse hair larps and things like that and real drums made the same way that they would have made instruments back in the day played by historians and people that would know how they would be played. That's so cool. So you're, what you're hearing in this film is the closest rendition that we know of to like what they would be getting hyped to, if you will. And again, the, the idea that these soldiers would be getting pumped up into their berserk forms to get ready for battle was also extremely historical accurate. Two quick things about historical accuracy that I found interesting from those Robert Eggers interviews that I was referring to earlier one was he used so many pieces of to the nth degree his accuracy of like dude these boats they made during that during the shot where it it, it reintroduces Amleth rowing yeah. through the river as, as an adult they built that boat using the same materials like the same kind of wood as well as the same techniques that they would have used back then Damn. to build those boats they used the same kind of wood to build the shields and there's even a, an amulet that's around his neck that is a replica of an actual amulet they found in a viking grave Damn. so everything in this movie is as historically accurate as possible but the two things that eggers pointed out are not historically accurate one was in this film you'll see a lot of folks that are uh, most males have their hair that's either all the way down to their ears or past their ears or even to their neck, um, including most of our main male characters in this film. But in reality, a lot of them would have put a bowl on their head and done a legit yeah. bowl cut. And the second thing that, again, Eggers opted not to do was during the, the raid scene, which we're about to talk about that you referred to, you'll notice that most of the berserkers are nearly naked. They'll have just like one piece of cloth around their around their uh, nuts basically and um by the way did you like that i was trying to think of the most pc way of putting that and then i landed on nuts yeah, yeah, I, that's not how you were that's not the direction <laughs> i thought you were going to take that but congrats oh, how do i put this they're dicks um but anyways in, in the real viking raids a lot of them would have been completely naked oh, yeah for sure and in in both of those comments edgar's decided not to do it because he was like well both the bull cuts and people running around naked would have been, while accurate, would have been very distracting sure. from like the drama that he was trying to portray. So I thought that was a good example of him, like again, trying to be historically accurate, but showing a little bit of restraint and not going the nth degree. Because as much as I knock 
certain things like Gladiator or whatever for maybe not being historically accurate. I thought that this movie did a good job of like picking and choosing Agreed. Uh, when to be a little bit Hollywood and when to not. So anyways, uh, the, the, the raid scene, let's go. Into yeah. That. So they, they are again, a way of demonstrating the arrival of adult omelet. They raid, uh, this land called Rus. And in the climax of this, they uh, encounter this, I think they call her a seeress, which I guess is a, a, the female version of a seer. Yeah. And she she's in this badass temple, and she allows for Amleth to get, yet this is the second time in the movie that we're getting kind of like a spiritual, kind of trippy uh, reading of Amleth as he's going down this road of his of his destiny. And she tells him that it's about to be game time, bro. You're about to get revenge on Fjolnir. And Amleth has been obviously kind of like preparing himself for this, you know, final showdown for his entire life. And he finds out that Harald of Norway, who's obviously like a real historical legendary yeah. Viking lord, uh, has overthrown Fjolnir. He kicked his ass. And Fjolnir now lives in exile in Iceland. So Amleth decides he's going to sneak up. He's going to, despite having found a new life that is incredibly rewarding and he could totally live peacefully among these Vikings for the rest, not peacefully, but you know what I mean? Like fulfillingly and like totally chill. <laughs> yeah, the opposite of right. Not, not peacefully. There's a bad, bad, bad wording there, but he could totally have a fulfilling existence with this. These people who took him in. He, he could not go. He could choose to not go into slavery. Exactly. And, he chooses to go and instead slavery. he goes, he poses as a slave to make his way to Iceland. He sneaks aboard this this ship filled with slaves uh, to make his way to Iceland uh, to, to follow what he considers to be his his destiny. And he's repeating, you know, this mantra of, like, he's going to get revenge for his dad, he's going to save his mom, he's going to wax Fjolnir. But, by the way, before we go into that, can we talk a little bit about the raid scene? Yeah, please, break it down for us. Even, first of all, do you know who the Cirrus is in real it's, life? It's Bjork, isn't it? That was? Yeah, it's yeah, Bjork. Isn't that wild? Which she's, Bjork, she's Bjork like, is, it's like a national requirement that like anything in Scandinavia, like Bjork has to be involved. She is like their national hero. <laughs> like I can't name anything Bjork related, but I know who she is to the point where when I saw her on screen, I was like, I recognize her. And then I started thinking about it and was like, was that Bjork? Yeah. And then sure enough, by the credits, I was like, I was like, that's so yeah. weird. But anyways, um, the scene itself, I wanted to talk a bit about... Um, as, again, as I referred to, there's a bunch of really cool videos that break down Robert Eggers' perspective, how he shot this film. He talked about how this film was one of two scenes that he felt came out the best uh, or like envisioned what he wanted when he was kind of storyboarding this film. And two things that popped out to me. First of all, this is the first action scene that is incredibly involved with multiple characters, right? You had the scene where Amla's father got killed, but that was pretty mono mono like you had a CGI arrow or two, and then you had, like, his head getting cut off. So that's pretty easy to, like, do and redo. This scene was a little bit different. This was a, as we talked about a little bit earlier, this was a single-shot scene. Yeah. It reminded me of the beginning of, um, what's that movie that Leo won the Oscar for, finally? Oh, uh, um, Revenant. The Revenant. Revenant. Yeah, the, the opening scene of The Revenant, where it's, like, all one, the whole combat sequence is, like, one big fight, fight yep. tracking shot is awesome. Yeah, so it's a, it's a lot like The Revenant. Um, you had, so this was technically done in two shots. And kind of as I said earlier about the first act, this, this scene could have gone on from anywhere between, I would say, 12 to 20 minutes. I, I It wouldn't surprise me if it was even longer than that. It is a very long action scene 
set up by some effectively Viking shit talking as they're outside of town. And then at the end of it, as you said, there's a little bit of a exploration of the town that Amleth does, you know, and at the conclusion of that, he runs into the seer. Um, but again, this scene is incredible from a, from a filmmaking perspective, because you have this, the core of Vikings that Amleth is with has probably 30 dudes ish, give or take. Um, it tracks them as they have their initial battle cry, exchange spears with the town that they're raiding. They climb the wall, and then it tracks them as they raid this entire town. And you have what I would guess is probably, at minimum, 100 to 200 actors, like maybe going in and out of the shots, things like that. In in, in these scenes, you even have like arrows. You have people doing some pretty crazy involved combat stuff where they're like falling off of roofs and things like that you even have horses horses getting you know shot and falling to the ground and running up and galloping away again these are all extremely involved things from like a choreography perspective and then you know as as somebody pointed out like the wailing and the the acting in the background of like mothers calling out for their children and then getting slaughtered like and then it culminates with this scene where all of the civilians of this town got get stuffed into a building and the building gets lit on fire so again this is two shots it's the shot of them climbing over the wall and then it's the and then it's the shot of them raiding the village culminating with the building getting lit on fire i mean think about all that has to go into these hundreds of actors you know going through the choreography of slaying people getting slayed the horses falling down things getting lit on fire and again to the point where a a whole building gets lit on fire all while you have close-ups of Alexander Skarsgård reacting to all of this stuff. I mean, how easy would it be for like them to go 12, 15, 17 minutes of like everybody does exactly what they want to do, including the horses, and then for Skarsgård to like break face or like to smile? Like, dude, could you imagine the pressure of filming that scene? It's just again, we, we talked about 1917 earlier about how it was how that movie also had a bunch of uh single shots, but in 1917, I can't think of a single scene where you had one or two actors having to stay in character and like having close-ups all while incredibly involved stuff happens like that in the background. Like, dude, the more I think about that scene, it really is like one of the best battle scenes that I've seen in any movie. And and again, the only the only thing I'll I'll I guess point out about it is when you're watching this movie for the first time, and I and I kind of want to hear your thoughts on this. You'll see some scenes where Andy the acting is. Where they'll when they do their like interpersonal slashings of the swords and the axes, it's very slow. Did you notice that? Yeah, um, I think I and I have actually seen comments on that online about this movie. Um, I think we got really used to, especially in the early two thousands, like the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon era, the late the Star yeah, Wars prequels yeah. era. People got really super used to this like highly stylized kind of ninja esque combat with lots of like flipping and like super fast swords play that had a lot of movement for the sake of looking cool. I think the what people lose in that is the reality that for most of human history, melee combat has been fought with like incredibly heavy weaponry that has to be carried by someone for miles at a time, and yeah, yeah. all movement is done for the purpose like melee combat in reality is a very very practical combat whittled down to its you know most basic and practical pragmatic elements um so real 
combat with swords does not look that cool as compared to like you know tiptoeing up the the limbs of trees and like dancing in the air and like fighting yeah. with swords um not that i don't love crouching tiger like i think that is amazing and has its own artistic value but when it comes to yeah. things like this uh i think they i i like and, and i think we've seen this with other other movies too recently is that they've tr- kind of tried to return to this much more like brutal personal close-up combat that is probably much closer to what real melee combat actually looked like in period which i think is really cool yeah and and i guess i would almost say that real combat in a way would look a lot more like wrestling yeah probably when you see you know you and i have shared a lot of hood site and world star links to one another over the over the years and most fights devolve into like scrappiness right like they're not really just like you raise up your, you know, in, in this context, you raise up the butt of your sword and you smack them once and then they fall back and then you slash them once and they're dead, right? It's a lot more complicated than that. But where I, what I was going to say was I give this movie a 100% pass in the sense that when there is, there is some stylized fighting, uh, the la- the final yeah, scene the has stylized fight fighting, which is so rad. <laughs> yeah, which we'll get into that. Um, that stylized this this one was not as stylized and and i think the reason was because as i said this was a 15 minute-esque like single shot and from a from like a logistic standpoint you can't have a 15 minute single shot that includes alexander skarsgård having like incredibly acted out like 20 bit blow by blows with one person and then moving on because remember you have like i said you have horses involved you have things being lit on fire so you can't just like you have to as Skarsgård put it in an interview you can't like have him have like eight to nine beats as he's beating the crap out of somebody and then move on you have to be cognizant of where the camera is and be like one hit two hit all right I'm moving on one hit two hit I'm moving on and I I completely give them credit because again you watch Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon and they did a phenomenal job of editing that with the cuts because the cuts are pretty seamless but there's a ton of a them. Like, of cuts in yeah. those Crouching like Tiger 50, Hidden Dragon fights cuts in a shot yeah right you'll have again first of all they're professionals they're like professional uh what's what's the term I'm looking for like they're basically like trapeze artists yeah, and like gymnasts yeah, and these like, are choreographed like dancer gymnasts right yeah they they are like stunt people before actors whereas right. Skarsgård is the opposite and so a it's an unrealistic expectation but then b crouching tiger hidden jagged had all these different cameras working with all these different cuts so it's a lot more realistic for them to expect for them to go i'm gonna have eight or nine crazy naruto level like blocking and attacking bits and then switch the camera or like cut edit and then do it all again. So again, I I just wanted to call that out there for anybody that was critical of the slow action of the slow fighting style. I think it was it was well warranted. Yeah, I, I we've gone on way too long. No, about I, I liked <laughs> it a lot. Um, and so so yeah, the, it does. There is this amazing battle sequence that I think really does bring home the the transition from this boy version of Amleth we saw to this man who has evolved into this hyper violent killing machine who is. Uh, this is the signal to the audience that he is prepared to live out the destiny that we've, you know, he has devoted himself yeah. to this revenge mission. And it, and isn't his like his meeting with the Cirrus or the Cirrus? Yeah, Cirrus's Bjork, uh, as we'll say, when he when he sees Bjork, it is kind of the the haven't haven't you lost your way type yep. event 
right? Where he he has been this just like brutal killer without a purpose, and you can even see that in his as he's completely complicit, obviously, in pillaging this village. There's moments where he'll like turn and see like a family being split apart or like a mother fighting to save her child. And you can almost see on Skarsgård's face or Amleth's face that like he wants to intervene and you're kind of expecting it as the audience, but he just like lets it happen. Yeah. And then the Seeress is like, hey, haven't you forgotten your oath? Like, which he really did at that yeah, point. Yeah, for sure. You know? So he, he is kind of corrected back onto his like, you know, destined path at this point. And he stows away on this slave ship headed to Iceland to find his mother, hopefully, and Fjolnir. And amongst these slaves, he meets this girl, Olga, uh, who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who is another, like, I don't know how Edgar Wright gets all these amazing actors to be, I mean, I do know how he does it, because he's amazing, but another actress. Well, he discovered yeah, her. Yeah, the witch was really, like, her first big break, and, and now she's in everything. She's, like, the next huge, yeah, she's uh, about to be in that new movie that has Christian Bale and Margot Robbie in it, Amsterdam, that comedy that's coming out that's supposed to be amazing i haven't even heard about it's, that what's that about? um let me see if i have a a condensed version of the plot i know it's a we're be, we're gonna be robert egger slash william to go yeah it's an upcoming period comedy film uh written directed and produced by david o russell it was filmed in los angeles three friends a doctor a nurse and an attorney become the prime suspects in a murder in the late 1930s the cast is Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, John David Washington, Remy Malek, Robert De Niro, Mike Myers, Timothy Oliphant, Michael Shannon, Chris Rock, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Taylor Swift, and Sean Avery. Shout out to Taylor Swift for sneaking her way into all these different no like, kidding, hodgepodge dude. comedy movies. But th- Between that and The Giver, she's carved herself out quite a career. No joke. He meets Olga, who she is uh, also possesses some level of like witch abilities, as, as a lot of characters in this uh, movie do. She she's a sorceress. She's and so she devotes herself to like helping Amleth on this this journey. And so they arrive in Iceland, and the slaves are taken to Fjolnir's farm, and he finds out that. Uh, Fjolnir has uh, married the queen, his his mother, and they have uh, their own son now, Gunnar. And so he's like, what the fuck, dude? Like, not only did he take my, you know, kill my dad and steal my mom, but now he's like forced her to have a new family. Like, this is fucked. He has a half-brother, yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's a huge thing. And so they're like settling into this life as a slave. And one night he flees this farm. And encounters uh, this he witch who, through yet another mystical ceremony, facilitates this spiritual dialogue between him and our old friend uh, Hymir, the uh, G- yeah, the jester played by Willem Dafoe, and and now he's like a shrunken. I was going to say it's just a shriveled just like- head, which is so fucked. But he he basically tells him like, yeah, first of all, Fjolnir, Fjolnir murked my ass. And second of all, uh, there's this dope-ass magical sword that can only be drawn at night, which is the coolest fucking thing I've ever thought of in my life. <laughs> and yeah. he tells him, like, basically tells him, like, this is, here's its location. Uh, you get this shit, you can fucking, you know, you can fuck up Fjolnir. This is the, the, the magic revenge blade. And so he's like, I bet. Thanks. Thanks, boss. Can I stop you right here? I just wanted to say for a second, from a writing perspective, I love that from literally Act 1, when you have Amleth go in with his father, the king, into the kind of hut with William de Goat and 
do the whole like I'm turning into a bear being ceremony that's incredibly trippy like they drink essentially yeah. mushroom water and like get they drink some purple lean anyone that's taken mushrooms will tell you that that's like not how mushrooms work so like they must have been taking some serious like crazy mushrooms dude like that's more of an acid thing know, <laughs> to turn into a bear <laughs> like i had a I, i'll tell you what it depends on where you go i had a friend go to oaxaca once and he said differently he said he swears to this day that he watched himself be born whichever whatever that means don't get me wrong i'm sure that there are like mushrooms that have like dmt in them and shit that i don't know about but like from a if someone is like i have shrooms do you want shrooms what you can expect out of that is way more emotional tripping than like visual shit there might be some slight movement to objects in your peripheral vision but like my friend turned into a bear that's relatively unusual but uh i have no doubt that the vikings one had the most fire of mushrooms and two probably had like other you know herbs and like ergot and shit that probably like made them trip super super balls as well so but from a from a writing perspective what i was gonna just point out was i like how early and often they introduced the idea that there was a supernatural element oh yes and so from that ceremony with william de goat to like the ceremony before they did the raid and there was the berserkers to this we just pointed out was this idea that there was a super a supernatural element to the story just fed throughout the entire narrative to the point where you almost felt like amleth was like a creature of destiny oh definitely right which which is part of the story we're like but you did get a sense of like i don't want to say god but like some element some deity valhalla whatever odin is on his side, which he actually points out to something that we happen, we see a little bit later with like his escape yeah. or whatever. But um, again, this supernatural element, I think plays really well into you just, you had this confidence throughout the movie that the main character is going to be all right. In, in the sense of like what he considers all right, which is getting. Revenge, yeah. And well, everything also. pretty much, he's so like capable and like the chosen one that like pretty much everything in this movie and the story goes right for him until the end which is an interesting piece of the theme in general. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, so he tells him about this badass sword and he goes out, he tells him the location. He goes out, he has to fight through an undead spirit to claim this blade, which he does, which is fucking sweet. Did you like the part how it was like the, um, it was almost like there was a cut where he fought the guy and then the, the camera moved and he hadn't, he clearly hadn't fought him yet. Yeah, dude. I there were so many pieces. Did you, think, like, did you think that was a vision, or do you think that was like what he thought might happen? I thought I felt like that was him again. This piece of like everything that he's going to do is foretold kind of thing with him, where like he's a creature of destiny, and so like that's just a piece of the equation. It's just like he he can yeah. tell like where how things are going to unfold for him. Such a cool like who would have thought to do that? Because it it would have been so easy to just like have him have that fight scene and then just like. That's just a, I, I take that as just like such a sign of confidence in telling this story. You know, like as a storyteller, uh, Robert Eggers is so confident in his vision for how he wanted this to be done. And by the way, doesn't that kind of speak to, you talked about the confidence of Robert Eggers. Like we're talking so much in a few episodes about ago about how much we stand Adam McKay, which I still stand Adam McKay. He's still obviously incredible, but you worried a little bit about how Robert Eggers has done such an incredible i would call like freshman year of like creating films he's done three and they've all been phenomenal um i would say the same thing about mckay both with his comedies as with his dramas um the big short is still to this day one of my bet like maybe even top five films of all time i absolutely love the big short but i'll say this man there are episodes of the latest few seasons of secession 
as well as Matt, uh, winning time, his story about the Lakers, where I just feel like he's gotten a little bit too McKay for McKay. He does, he like breaks the fourth wall way too often these days and has has these insults that are way too drawn out. I feel like that's that's tempting for like so many. I mean, you can see it happen with even other parts of creativity. I saw a whole thing today about the concept of the Joker, like as a Batman villain. Yeah. Like post Heath Ledger, every we have done five iterations of the Joker since the Dark Knight came out. And all of them are so connected to the Heath Ledger Joker that it's like impossible to disconnect it from that performance because it's so it was so groundbreaking and so amazing. And I agree with that. Obviously, I think it's one of the. Does that include the samurai? This Joker, is like like the we're, Japanese. We're talking about like TV, movies, video games. Like we've done the Joker a bunch, like from Jared Leto to you know et cetera, et cetera. And he got his own standalone movie. And this whole, like, move towards, like, a really demented, unhinged, damaged Joker, as opposed to kind of what he was before, which is, like, the clown prince of crime, has almost, like, the the Joker as a character is supposed to be, like, an agent of chaos, like, completely unpredictable in, in all aspects. And in a weird irony, yeah. he's become totally predictable. Like, when the Joker's going to be in a movie now, we know what we're getting. We're getting this, like, how crazy can I be, Batman? You know what I mean? Like... Even in the new Batman movie, the the post credit sequence they released, we can see that Joker. You're like, okay, this is gonna be like very Heath Ledgery, and it's like you know delivery of like certain like uh, eccentricities of like how the mouth moves and like just little things that are like definitely connected to the Heath Ledger performance. So things can be a victim of their own success, whether it's directors, whether it's individual characters, things like that. Can can I push back a little bit on the last point, even though it's totally irrelevant to what we're talking about in general i i rewatched uh the the batman and then i rewatched the like ending sequence with my brother which by the way i, I wanted to point out i think that i think hbo inserted you remember how the final credit scene or like the middle of the credits there was a scene where uh the riddler meets the joker in arkham yep. and they the scene ends with them laughing in in the hbo version they inserted that into the movie Weird. uh before Batman and Cap. Oh, I don't like or, that at all. I guess Selena Kyle. I don't like that yeah, at all. That was interesting. Um, yeah, maybe that's just a way for them to like make sure that people watch it as opposed to like clicking away and seeing another film. Sure. But point being is, I've, I've I've watched it multiple times. Is what I was getting at, and uh, I disagree with the sense that like I I don't think that the Heath Leather Heath Ledger Batman would have helped Batman Christian Bale Batman at all. And I think that this Batman, like the fact that he would look at the files and more importantly, the fact that the Batman in this movie would hand the files over to the Joker and have an expectation that he would look at the files and kind of help him just points out that like maybe it is a little different. Uh, oh, I'm, right? I'm not I mean, saying that there's no difference between these different iterations of Joker. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that like but before that movie came out, every edition of the Joker kind of started with a clean slate effectively like you could kind of do whatever you wanted as long as it operated within certain parameters and now the shadow of the heath ledger version of the joker is on every single version of the joker like it is he's become like there is just that like we live in a society i'm so damaged how crazy can i be element to every playing of the joker and like that's i'm not saying that's good or bad necessarily i'm just saying that like that has become part of the joker thing the joker identity and 
that is the the weight of an you know a an iconic performance right like that that was probably destined to happen after Heath Ledger did such an amazing job and then died but it's it's a little sad to me because like the Joker is such an incredible character he's like Batman's greatest villain and I don't I think it's going to take us a long time to see anyone try anything from a design and aesthetic standpoint that's like really really far away from the Heath Ledger thing like you look at the jokers that were done in film before that like the Jack Nicholson uh joker and it's like very different this like completely white you know completely he's like a gangster yeah he's right? like a not kind of a mobster joker and he's got this like perfect white face paint that's like perfectly smooth on all sides you know it looks like he does it every day and heath was the first one to do like the it looks like he applied it once and then never did it again it's all fucked up and now every joker is like that this like weird like demented clown well except for jared leto jared leto did more of the gangster thing but like modern <sighs> yeah J- jared my i have a, we could go on a whole separate podcast on my issues with the jared leto joker who like isn't even a character like it, t- it Jared Leto's Joker is entirely surface level. Like he literally has the word "damaged" written on his face because it's just so like all show, no tell. There's the Joker. The Joker has no deep motivation. The Joker has no backstory. The Joker has his whole thing is like I'm gonna hang out in a nightclub and drive purple Lambos and just be so crazy, dude. Oh, oh, so crazy, <laughs> like. We get it. As we've talked about, I think that 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 version of the Joker was heavily hamstrung by editing, which is really honestly well documented. Like, I honestly would have loved to see what he could have come up with if we had seen the other 30 minutes. That's totally fair. It's just having him for two minutes. It just sucks. I hate it. So. What does? I just, what we see sucks. I hate it so much. Okay, <laughs> I, I think I thought you were saying an abbreviation. I was about to be like, boy. No, no, it. I was just like, what but, if what we saw? I just like hated it so much. Like I was just like, it's like, oh, what if I hung out in a room surrounded by guns? That'd be pretty crazy, right, guys? Because here's like, the thing: we can't out the same mouth like praise Jack Nicholson. Uh, I always pause when I say that because as a golf fan, I'm always like, Jack Nicholas. Yeah, I do the same thing, and I'm not even a golf fan. I'm always like, am I saying the right one? Like, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Is uh, Lee Trevino a good joker? No, uh, we praise Jack Nicholson for acting like a gangster, but in all reality, he's playing a movie in the 1990s, kind of acting like a 1920s gangster in in, in kind of a weird way. Like, So I would almost say that the Jared Leto gangster is a little bit more modern times where he's going to be into the sports cars. He's going to be into the bling or whatever. Like, I kind of get it was a unique take. So in a way, we can't out of the same mouth, like, totally critique Jared Leto, but not without giving him credit to like, hey, at least he tried something and also acknowledge that, like, got totally dogged by this yeah it doesn't help that i kind of loathe jared leto i think that definitely plays into my bias against that whole thing so like yeah it's it's a little bit me too yeah i go back and forth jared leto is a very polarizing yeah don't get me wrong he can act his ass off like dallas buyers club is fucking incredible lord of war he's fucking incredible he also has like something resembling a cult going on and texts weird shit to 15 year old girls so i'm kind of like i don't know how to feel about you dude hey dude if every if every army hammer and oh uh what's the guy from green goblin help me out here the only green goblin i know of is willem defoe dude sorry or not green goblin hobgoblin help me out i I literally don't know i I, i'm not a huge spider-man guy 
Who's William Defoe's son in the Spider-Man films? They, he like taught at UCLA, and then like he's really good looking and shit. James, James Franco. Uh, James Franco. Thank you. James Franco. Yeah, he also texted. Yeah, he's a fucking weirdo too. Yeah, fuck him. And so did uh, was it was it? I'm I'm gonna totally libel some mofo's in this pod, but was it uh, Marlon Brando or one of those guys who that was... wouldn't shock me? Marlon Brando's a real fuck up towards the end of his life, <laughs> <laughs> fat alcoholic. <laughs> like, I'm just I'm just throwing out famous people and be like, hey, didn't they mess around with the underage? Hey, girls? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think so. He feel yeah, that feels right. I'm sure that's not going to get us in trouble. Should we talk about the Northmen? Yeah, I think we so, should. Okay, so sorry about that. Huge Where are we at? So they just get – this is uh, the day after he gets the badass dagger, the night, Dragur, the Nightblade. He's selected to play Sick. in this game. Uh, and again, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce this game, but it's this badass like traditional Catalyker, uh, Nautilkeker, like this. It's a traditional Viking ball game. The fact that you use like four wholly different letters in your pronunciation tells me you almost certainly oh, I didn't. Was it close? It right. I'm not going to pretend I was. Um, <laughs> but it's it's like this traditional Icelandic uh, ball game played by the Vikings, um, and it actually has like a. We- I looked into this. It actually has like a weirdly like semi large following on co- American college campuses. There are a lot of like clubs that play this game in American colleges, which is that's cool. Better than being in Quidditch club. Like Quidditch. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was just, yeah. So. Uh, but the so he's selected to play uh, on on and it's played between like obviously the farm they're on their slaves versus you know the other family and their slaves and uh, the game turns violent and Amleth saves uh, Gunnar uh, who is about to get murked by the other team's champion. Well, gu- well, yeah, Gunnar tries to jump in and like score the winning goal. Right. The 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 I guess we should go back a little bit because it's been a while since we talked about the movie itself, but it's the. It's the uh, his half brother yeah. who is like the new prince, the son of his mother will, and of... Fjolnir, uh, who is like the yeah. you know the son of the now pretty much the role uh, that he had as a child, right? Like the prince of this right. existing place, um, and he saves this guy's life. And as a reward for that, Fjolnir's oldest son, who's an adult, um, who I think is Thor, Thor, a total, yeah, dick. he's a douche. Um, yeah. But he, as a reward for that, he allows Amleth to claim Olga as his wife and kind of makes him like senior rep of the slaves <laughs> like not really like, a pro- hey you can boss people around and you you're can still also, a slave like, you're still a slave, slave but you can be right. like the the top slave like assistant manager yeah. does it come with a race it doesn't it, it absolutely not yeah. but you can wear this name tag so by the way can we just talk about the scene of the sport that you tried to reference um that was that got me so amped as just like just watching that scene where it's it's incredibly violent and in the opposing team, there's that guy who's like, what I imagine in real life is like six four, two hundred and sixty pound, just like mammoth dude. And the fact that how he like incapacitated that guy was just like headbutting him over and over again, just shows like his berserk state. Because yeah. again, headbutting, you would imagine headbutting somebody would cause the same amount of damage to you that it does them. But like Amleth is such a berserk that. He can just headbutt the crap out of somebody until they're literally just like a pulp and they they probably yeah. are dead. But Amleth is totally He's down fine. to go farther. So, cool. so I looked it up. It's not like her. So there you go. I've I've done my do, my. Do I don't I don't know what your other pronunciations were, but they were nothing yeah, like it's, that. Like, you dude, try. They use so many consonants next to each other. It's so hard. So he he gets to claim Olga as his wife, and that evening, like during the like celebration around them winning this game. 
they promise that they're going to like work together to like overthrow Fjolnir. He kind of lets her in on his whole shtick. And she kind of becomes... Which I thought was a mistake. Yeah, I, I also think that, like, she represents sort of the brain to his brawn. Like, he, pro- she provides, like, this pathway to, again, a lot of the theme of this movie is about, like, destiny versus choice. And she is kind of the the living embodiment of choice. Like, she is the one that can provide, like, this... Uh, a la- she a- works a lot behind the scenes to, like, make his plan work. And she's the one that sees it as more of a plot than a a destiny that is going to happen no matter what. So like I I view her kind of as like the brains to his, his like, you know, incredible brawn. So over the following night nights, uh, Amleth starts just like doing this, like basically a campaign of assassination where he's just like murking several of Fjolnir's men so that he can get closer and closer to him. And Olga in the background, like I said, she's like working on his side as well. She's mixing, psychedelic mushrooms into the, the men's uh, food so that Amleth can sneak into Fjolnir's house. And we finally kind of have this yeah. scene uh, where he meets with his mother. Oh my gosh. This Dude, this is nuts. so heartbreaking. Because, like, you have to imagine, this kid has lived since he was, like, 10 years old. For the last, like, 20 years, he's lived with the idea that, like, he's going to rescue his mom. That's been, like, his guiding, like, principle to his life. Like, his entire life has led to this pinnacle moment of him saving his mom. And his mom reveals that, one, originally she was taken into slavery uh, and that Amleth's conception, like the the way that he was born, like wasn't like his parents fell in love and had this kid. Like she got taken into slavery by Ethan Hawke and raped. And so that's where he came from. And he's like, what the fuck? She then on some Oedipus shit, she tries to kind of seduce him while revealing that it was her order to kill Amleth and her his dad. So like straight out of Macbeth, son on a revenge tour, the mom, the evil queen kind of thing. Like she orchestrated the whole plot to get Ethan Hawke killed and ordered that Amleth get killed too. And so he has spent his entire life working towards saving the very woman who enacted the greatest trauma of his existence. And so he's like, what the fuck? And she also, to add kind of insult to injury, she says that she actually like you know she she loves Fjolnir and she prefers Gunnar to him. He does she doesn't even like give a shit about her firstborn son. She's like fuck you. So Damn. he's super pissed. He goes out, mercs Thorir, the adult son, Fjolnir's first son, and steals his fucking heart, which is like the most brutal so shit badass. I've ever heard of in my life. Which which by the way, I want to talk about the realism for a second is. There, there were some scenes in the. There's different killings that happen, right? We kind of glossed mm-hmm. over it, but there's different ways that over the course of like four nights, where where Amleth goes and kills these folks. But the way that these bodies are discovered from like people's hanging by their intestines, yeah. like upside down, like those are actually real Viking like dishonorable deaths and executions, if yeah. you will. So it wasn't just like overly gory, like trying to make a point. It, it's historically accurate as to like. If this person was able to kill people and hide their body, that's how they would have. Oh yeah, I read I read the other day about this thing they had called the the modern historians refer to as the murder eagle, where they would break all their ribs and pull their rib cage through their back so that the rib cage would be like sticking out of their back like a pair of wings, (laughs) and so that was like considered this like incredibly you know epic ownage of someone. I was like, holy fuck, dude! Like, yeah. So I. I, dude, I still contend that the Persian death, I forget what it's called, where they, uh, this is going to be my, like, 
worst way to die is uh where they stick you in a boat oh yeah and they put another boat on top of it the fact that you know what i'm yeah, talking about and yeah so they put you in a boat covered on top of another boat they lather you in honey and then they throw you out into like a pool of water in the middle of the summer and they just let the flies eat you basically over the course of how the about days. uh how about the old uh genghis khan uh build lay you and all of your relatives and friends uh shoulder to shoulder like cordwood build a floor as wide as you are place it on top of you where the only thing between the ground and the, the floor is you and then have a five-day feast on that floor slowly crushing you to death as they dance and sing and eat for a week as you slowly scream and die below their feet <laughs> yeah i mean the the violence of the kind of retribution that Amleth is dishing out in these scenes is incredible. As I said, it's it's almost seems theatrical, but again, it's it's not. It's, it's pretty historically accurate. But again, it's the story is built around this idea of seeking revenge, and there are stories back in the past when obviously honor and seeking revenge was a bunch bigger deal. But then there's there's new age stories as we've talked about um, in the group chat a little bit. Like again, this is not that big of a spoiler, but like. There's a lot of elements of uh, Attack on Titan that are extremely um, into the idea of, you know, something that's wronged me 10, 20 years ago, like I'm going to seek retribution tenfold uh, years later. And that's not that's not incredibly out there. So, again, it is incredibly violent. And the revenge that he seeks upon the people in Fjolnir's camp is like, at the point you get to it, it feels well warranted. Because you just feel you feel so bad for Amleth, if you will. But then, as you said, his mother kind of providing that his mother throws a wrench in the the whole plan, if you will, just being like, "Nah, you don't need to save me. Like I'm good." Yeah, and and more. She's she's more than good. Yeah, that, dude. To this it just like want, it, as we build to this climax, it gets so crazy. So Fjolnir super pissed that his son's heart got stolen, and so trying to figure out who did this, he basically like pulls out Olga and is like, "I'm gonna kill this girl unless someone steps forward and tells me like who did this shit." And so that leads Amleth to revealing uh, that he did it, and he's like, "If you spare her life, I'll give you your son's heart." And he does makes that trade, and they start just beating the shit out of Amleth, but. In yet another kind of like, you know, supernatural element here, a flock of ravens descends as if from Odin himself to free him from captivity. He's kind of like, how do you know that that's your son's heart? Right. Right. Because they're about to kill him to death. They're about to beat him to death. And then they take him for prisoner and he's not uh, he's not going to relent. And they leave to go do the funeral. And that's when, again, he's tied up essentially. And then Odin's ravens come and set him free, which is very uh, it's almost like um, if you had told me that Eggers did that as like an ode to Christianity, like getting let out of the tomb, I would yeah. be, I would believe sure. that. Um, and so at this point, Olga and Amleth escape from the farm. They're going to go live with Amleth's relatives in Orkney and they get on this boat. They're escaping Iceland. This is to me like the biggest tragedy of the whole movie, honestly. And they are mm. gone. Like they have gotten on a boat. They like Fjolnir has effectively lost all his men, all his power. He, I mean, Amleth has taken, like, everything from this man. So, like, revenge, pretty much accomplished, pretty much. You're good. You are... are... Did we go over the fact that he killed his mother in self Yeah, oh, no, 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 that that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened yet. 
All right, so he, he's gone though. Like he can, Amleth can go live with Olga and have a great life. This is the the moment where choice and she's and, pregnant, yes, which again he doesn't know quite yet. So uh, he like this is the point where like choice and destiny are like butting directly up against one another. Where it's like, hey, here you go. Like feel free to get the fuck out of here. And as they're on this boat, Amleth kisses. Well, he sees the vision. That, that's what I remember. He touches her. <laughs> I'm literally. Ah! He gets on the boat, he kisses her, and that triggers this vision where he sees that she's pregnant with twins. Like, stop jumping ahead, motherfucker. Dude, they were dead the whole time. <laughs> Bruce Willis was dead the whole so, time. He kisses this wound on Olga's neck, and that triggers this vision where he sees that she's pregnant with twins. And not only is she pregnant with twins, but one of them is going to become the Maiden King of Prophecy, which is like a huge character in like many, you know, Viking legends. And part of the like vision that he saw from the Cirrus was the maiden King was going to like, you know, be this huge, huge piece of the culture going forward. And so he's gripped by this fear that as long as Fjolnir is alive. And now that he's like enacted his revenge on Fjolnir, he knows that Fjolnir will obviously be filled with the same desire for revenge that he has. And if not Fjolnir, um, then Fjolnir's, you know, still living son, uh, Gunnar. So, He's like, as long as this dude's alive, I, th- my children aren't safe at this point. Despite Olga basically, like, Olga's, like, begging him, basically. She's like, do not do this shit. Like, we made it. Like, we, we made it out of here. Like, yeah. we're alive. You you got revenge. We're out the trap. We, we made this we're shit. We're good. We've crossed the border. Yeah. And he decides, like, nah, I got to. He frees all the slaves, and he's, they begin this climactic battle on the farm where most of Fjolnir's men are killed. And while he's searching for Fjolnir, he is attacked by his mother and then by her favorite son, you know, the son of her and Fjolnir. And he's trying to just, like, defend himself. And in the chaos of this and in an act of self-defense, he ends up killing both of them. He's like, holy shit. First of all, he's seriously injured. So, like, he's, like, his strength... He gets stabbed like His strength is, like, significantly sapped here. And two... Just like the prophecy said, he sheds a tear for the first time since the death of his father. And that's like this huge, like the tear will return to you, you know, at the moment when it's needed. He's like, fuck, dude, I like can't believe this shit. And at that moment, Fjolnir arrives, discovers this scene and is like, all right, bro, meet me at the gates of hell (laughs) for this fucking climactic battle, which is at a volcano. Which, by the way. I, f- I forgot that the gates of hell was like a no oh, yeah that's a, that's a it's a geological so, phenomenon yeah <laughs> like yeah and so I was like I, I just thought that was like this incredibly badass way of being like you know I'll see you when we right both die. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah I'm over you but instead it's like no meet me a mile away and we're gonna right get this so they, out. The, he invokes the right of uh, of home gang which is a totally real uh very legal form of dueling that they had among viking culture where it's like when you and another dude just like could not squash beef just like fight to the death uh on a volcano apparently and so yeah it's like the it's like the old school way of going on nick cannon's yo mama and like just exact same it. thing so he goes to this actual volcano they get into this fucking dope sword fight and in kind of a bookend moment to this movie where it started, all of these events were precipitated by Ethan Hawke being decapitated at the beginning of this movie. Uh, Fjolnir is decapitated. Uh, and so ends, he accomplishes his goal. But in the process, by enacting this vengeance and continuing this cycle of revenge and violence, Amleth is fatally wounded. 
And as he lays dying on the field of victory, on on the eve of his vengeance being completed, he sees a future vision of his wife embracing their twin children, and a Valkyrie descends from Valhalla to, like, take him to Valhalla, you know, the heaven for warriors who have lived and died in yeah. honor. And that's the, the culmination of the movie. So, dude, at the end of this movie, it's just kind of like... You feel like he had a choice and yet he had no choice and I'm I'm torn between those twin concepts like a part of me is like dude he he fucking lived life to exactly how he should have you know what I mean like he he died with his boots on with his like living to the principles that he had ascribed his life to at the same yeah. time I'm like fuck man you shouldn't have left you know orphaned your wife and kids and you should have just stayed on that boat and gone home you know with your wife and kids and been their father that would have also been a good way to live too so dude it's beautiful it's a beautiful ending our kind of like western idea of looking at it is and what i mean by western is like our sane way of looking at it (laughs) in this context is like yeah you should have gone with your now pregnant wife and like lived your life as according and like minded your own but as is again i i talked a little bit earlier about how eggers stayed true to the culture of vikings and the culture of vikings was about vengeance and like dying on the battlefield even to the point where amleth says earlier in the movie as does his father that like dying on the battlefield is the ultimate oh yeah it's it's come back come back on your shield or don't come back you know what i mean like that's that's it in the way that you and i and most people in western culture is like i want the white picket fence i want 2.5 children and retire at a decent age and you know, and yeah, and a Porsche like uh, and an NFT or two like that's you know that's the American dream, right? God damn! And I, I want I want to be part of the flow state and um back you know for them it's it's I want to die on the battlefield and so we kind of look at this as like a tragedy, but I feel like if you somehow played magic and you had a a Viking warrior look at this movie, they'd be like, that is the true happy ending is like, he got, you know, Olga pregnant. She's going to go on and create a new dynasty, but he got to die on the battlefield. That's perfect. That's a perfect ending. Dude. And it's, it's a beautiful ending. The whole movie's fucking incredible. The performances. I mean, like I said, dude, like Alexander Skarsgård, I think turned in probably one of the best performances of the last decade in this movie. I feel like people that listen to every episode of this podcast are going to be like, Bro, Andy's just that guy that just thinks everything's good. Like, because every movie, I feel like I'm just like, this is a masterpiece. Uh, I'm going to be watching this movie in 50 years. I'm going to show my kids this movie. We're going to redo the Sandlot episode. Yeah, this is a masterpiece, man. It is a masterpiece in its own way. But (laughs) in its own way. But no, this this is, I think this is the best movie of the year uh, thus far. And probably one of the best movies of of the decade. It's an incredible, this is an incredible achievement. Uh, from many perspectives um like i said it's the it's gonna i think i don't think it's a stretch to say that this is going to go down as like the definitive piece of media about this topic i don't think you're going it's gonna be really hard to like see anyone do viking shit the same way ever again like this is to viking shit what the godfather or goodfellas was to mob shit you know what i mean this is like the art in its most distilled highest grade form so yeah yeah incredible you know what i'm gonna be interested to see is how most people view this film considering that it's got so many trippy elements and it's got these sort of like these ceremonies where they go into like their they go into their berserk form and these ceremonies that involve like mushrooms and stuff and it gets a little bit 
again, I don't want to throw around the term artsy, but I think that's what people are going to view it as a little bit. It's got bit. a 90% approval um, rating on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, and it's got a 66% approval rating from the audience. See, that scares me. Yeah. Like, that, that, that's exactly what I was worried about, is that people are going to wait 10 minutes and be like, this is dumb, and not really, like, try to... Because I feel like this movie does kind of like The Lighthouse. Like, if you go into this thinking it's going to be like a slasher, like, it's going to be like The Gladiator, where it's going to basically take on our American understanding of of 1300s England and then try to appropriate it to Viking culture, you're going to be disappointed. But if you try to watch it for what the filmmaker's trying to tell you and you watch it as this Hamlet slash Macbeth retelling of a Viking legend using Viking culture you're going to be wildly amazed. <laughs> Man, I'm doing my I'm doing my favorite thing is read read through the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and just find oh, the ones no. I hate. A sublime technical feat with no emotional core. Eggers doesn't offer anything new or subversive to the Hamlet tale, including its discussion of ma- on masculinity. Skarsgård feels miscast and perhaps Amleth is just boring. Score 3 out of 5 from the genius that is what? Joe Lipset. And uh what, what uh, what what uh publication do you think he's from? New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic. Uh, I heard I heard a take on masculinity that doesn't understand the confines of the work, so I'm going to go ask the the New Yorker. You know what? I I think you're you are significantly being mean to the New Yorker. They can have a really nuanced discussion of masculinity. Joe works for the Horror Queers podcast, so yeah. <laughs> There you How, go. I, I, I'm going to take that as an insult. The, the New Yorker is really good. So they, they are much better than the Horror Queers podcast, based solely on that review. I can't say I'm a ardent listener. I'm sure they have some hits. But uh, where the movie goes south is in the narrative and characters. Beneath the twisting Scandinavian folklore is a simple and familiar revenge story that never gives us a real reason to care. Dude, who are what? these people? I and we, th- okay, but see, I'm doing like th- I'm I'm in real time doing what a human does, which is like there are nine thousand positive reviews here of people being like, "This is fucking amazing. I love this. Let me tell you why." And I'm zeroing in on like I literally in the first two pages of reviews found two that were negative, and I've read them both. So like. It spends the first 20 minutes of the movie showing how much this little boy loves his family, and then it shows his family getting completely murdered and mauled. And then this guy has the gall to say, it never gives us a reason to care. <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> okay, like, who who said that? Uh, Some guy from Smash Cut Reviews. I mean, again, I like, all the real, that. anyone from anything you've ever heard of is like, this shit slaps. You know what I mean? Like, and and here's the thing: this movie plays really well in a, in a very heated political climate. Like, especially Viking shit can be very divisive because you know who loves Viking shit? Nazis. They love the shit out of that. Like anything that is like. So I I heard Eggert say that, and I was like, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not up on the latest of the alt right, but he said that in a podcast. Oh yeah, like, dude. They're. They're super into it. Like they, cause that's their whole thing is that like we're Nordic, you know what I mean? Like that's our, like if you, if you go on, if you delve anywhere into that side of things, like white identity politics, like their whole shtick is that we're, we're like powerful Nordic traditional white men of, you know, superior blood. You know what I mean? Like even those memes, like, you know, like those memes you see where it's like the guy that's like 
crying and he'll say an opinion and on the other side is a blonde bearded man who's like very stoic and says something oh, cool. Yeah, that's the, a Nordic yeah, dude. With, with a yeah, so that, face, yeah, yeah, so that's like the title of that meme is like Nord guy or something like that. So like they're very into like Viking uh, like the I mean the the largest neo Nazi group in America is called the Hammerskins. Like they're very into like, you know, hammer like all the Viking symbology. They're very into all of that stuff. See, I wouldn't have known that because I'm not I'm not up on the alt right stuff, but that's why I have you there on you the go. Pods. Exactly. I, I go to all the, the meetings. Uh, I have the back tattoos. But no, so I but I think that uh that being the case, this does a really good job of not playing as a some kind of like, you know, totally one dimensional white power fantasy that a lot of those people want Viking culture to be like, were they a warrior culture? Yes. Is there a brutal like adherence to tradition and family values and things like that? Absolutely. But they show that I think this movie does a great job of showing that these are real human beings that like encountered all the same societal level issues and interpersonal problems that every society has. And there's nothing like inherently superior or inferior about what's going on here. It's just a different time and place with a different set of social mores. Um, I thought Edgar's tackled this just so beautifully. I, I am driven nuts by writing critics, movie critics, however you want to kind of lump them all into one group that will look at a piece like this and say that it was, um, chauvinistic or it's like showing the like what's the word i'm looking for like white violence or male violence or whatever like and attributing it to a culture that like is obviously backwards to our modern understanding right like there's an inherent understanding with watching this film that hey vikings didn't have it all figured out like we have advanced past the point of vikings and to like we shouldn't have to attribute our modern society's understanding is right and wrong to vikings like we should be able to show what vikings thought was right and wrong and not have it turn into a discussion of like oh this is white violence no and, and again i don't think you, you know, I, I, I don't think we're seeing much of that like the vast majority of i agree um, the vast majority of people that we i've seen review this film even that I would consider very far left have said that it's an amazing film. I do I do think I do think that that discussion is worth having when it comes to the opposite of that person, right? So like there are there's this other kind of like we just said, like there's there's this person very invested in the identity, like white identity and white superior traditional identity and that discussion about like the white power fantasy is only in existence to counter that other one and so they are mutually they're like symbiotic like one cannot exist without the other and there's one didn't come before the other one right they they like snap into existence to combat one another like everyone that views viking shit as like this amazing testament to the superiority of white people and everyone that views viking shit as this heinous male power fantasy you know rooted in white supremacy like they snapped into existence and only are there to combat one another and i think the vast majority of normal people in the middle that do not ascribe to either one of those polarized extremes can see this for what it is and the nuance that exists within it and it, like i said it's yeah. gotten really good reviews so i think it's a it's testament just history. to that yeah it's history and it's just like understand what understand the context behind it and i'll i'll add another one for more of the modern times it's like i am incredibly i'll use their word I'll, i'm incredibly like triggered when i see certain critics be like there's no place for this villain to exist or this villainy to exist because it's racist or it's 
misogynistic or whatever. And the one I saw, the one I see very frequently is like Slytherin. I saw like people will be like, why does Slytherin still exist? Why is Slytherin in Harry Potter? And it's like, dude, for villain, villainy can take many forms. And well, is that asking, is that asking why it exists in our world or why it exists in their world? Because like, I have asked that too. Like if every major villain in history was all part of the same club, that club might be investigated. You know what I mean? Like the fact that Slytherin exists at Hogwarts is a reasonable question in my opinion. Like but they're clearly I, yeah, the bad more, guys. <laughs> like, it's more the idea of like from a writing perspective, why did you why did you kind of like conjure up this Oh, well yeah, I mean JK like Rowling you know, is uh you know pale white people with blonde hair that are supremacist. JK like, Rowling is like sort of kind of okay with like racial superiority topics. Like we can talk about the house elves if you want, but like you know, we know a little bit about J.K. Rowling and her feelings on certain groups of people. Like, she's not the most egalitarian approach to life. We we have been very, we have commonly quoted her thoughts on Thomas Dean, comma, a black boy, Dude, comma. She, uh, I, I could go in on it, the whole Harry yeah, Potter I, I, thing. I'm not, I'm not the first person. Listen, I am like the poster child of not jumping to her defense. But there's, I guess what I'm saying is like, dude, you can't take like racism and misogyny as it exists today is bad but that doesn't mean that like literature and fiction narrative especially historical fiction like can't include that i agree that's part of our history as people i agree with you is like yeah there's gonna be fucked up stuff like and that's and that's part of what needs to be part of history especially historical fiction now if you write a like sci-fi that gets off on misogyny that's different that's a different conversation but when you write you can't write vikings and have them be like you know, and then have them have our modern understanding of sexes and race and stuff. I think the discussion needs to center around the idea of how you view these things. I don't think we shouldn't study the Civil War. That doesn't mean that I think we should build heroic statues of, you know, people that betrayed Wait, our country. You know what I mean? So like, huh? you know, so like there's, there's a, there's, there's again, like any of these very complicated topics. Not even Stonewall Jackson? Not even crazy ass Stonewall Jackson who rode around with his right hand in the air to balance his humors. <laughs> it's kind of a nut job, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, there's, there, we, it is absolutely crucial that we understand history from the most objective point we're capable of. It is also okay to criticize historical figures despite their ignorance like we can under we can have a discussion of like the good things that historical figures did and the value that they had to their society at the time and still also discuss hey what they did here was bad and i think it is a i think sure. it's a a sign of like decreased intelligence in some people that they can't hold both of those thoughts in their head at the same time that like it's that like someone must be painted good or evil, and the fact is, almost no humans are. Like Martin Luther King did mostly yeah. amazing things. He also did some bad things. That doesn't mean that we should like you know paint him one way or the other. It's vastly important that we understand the gravity of what he did from a good perspective, and that doesn't mean we need to like hyper focus on the bad things either. You know what I mean? It's just one of those things. It's like humans operate as right. humans, yeah, yeah. just regardless of their historical context. Yeah, agreed. This movie is incredible. Um, I can't wait to see it again, dude. I really need to see it again to like 
because I, like I said, I really ruined this for myself just by, by the context of my viewing. I feel like it's only going to get yeah. better. I'm going to give it a really good score, but I feel like it's only going to get better when I see it again with completely undivided attention. You, when you read it, it had a 66% uh, viewer rating. That was disappointing, uh, to say the least. Again, I think it probably has to do with people expecting to see the movie 300 and not getting that and being disappointed because there's... I wouldn't even say it's slow, but it definitely has... It's 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 far from slow, but it definitely is not 300. Man, right? if you click and over to audience reviews, it's even worse. <laughs> How on earth did this movie get such good reviews? Terrible revenge movie. The quote-unquote artistic approach, as usual, sucks. See parentheses, see fart and burp to kick things off. Boring, dull, actionless. Should have been a streaming movie. Okay. Uh, half a star. I'm being generous. Everyone in the theater had that look of, why did I just waste two hours of my life? Trust me, it sucks. That's not a review. To be like, this movie sucks. Like, everyone I was with was totally like, this sucks. Because it sucks. Trust me, it sucks. Like, <laughs> that's just like, like I uh, I feel like I'm making it political. But like, they yeah, all, like, everyone says know, that I'm awesome. Trust me. That's my proof of it, is that everyone says so. You're just like, dog, that's not... I was gonna make I was gonna make a similar note and just be like, man, when you watch those like networks that are that literally make money off of making you outraged or scared, will like clip together videos of like voters coming out of the booth and be and say like the dumbest shit ever. That's what I feel like I'm reading. Where it's just like, I have no faith in humanity. Like I have no faith in audiences. Yeah. Like reading that people reading that people walked out and were like, that was a complete atrocious film. It's like, what did we watch the same movie? Am I that? Am I that? Um, again, as as writers, like, are we that out of touch with like our audiences that we think that sucks, or are there true like mouth breathers that just love like the worst stuff? Like I, I I'm puzzled for sure. I'm very dude. Puzzled. I mean, it's shit like this where you read this and you're like, yeah, man, like this is why they make Marvel movies. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's why those movies make so much money is like people like this are just like, dude, this fucking sucks, bro. Like what, ugh, I have to, there's so much fucking talking and shit. Like God, like, and we, and here's the thing. It's like both of us generally when they're done well, like Marvel movies, like we've done. I love shit like that, dude. I am. I will watch every shitty action movie, dude. One of my favorite movies in the world is commando. It's barely a movie. It's mostly a highlight reel of explosions. And I love it. Like I'm not some like totally pretentious hipster who wants to see like a two hour still frame of a can of soup with French, you know, French dialogue in the background. I don't need that. All I'm saying is like, there's a space between the two. You know what I it, mean? Like, it goes back to what we said last week where they're like, it's any any level of subtext or any level of artistic value. They're like... One of the worst movies I've ever seen. The script was a joke. Don't waste your time. Very poor acting. It was like watching a third grade school play. What? <laughs> you must have a banger of a third grade near you, bro. Sign me up for that third grade school play, my guy. <laughs> And you know what? Like, we have no idea how many of these are real. Like, these could be fucking bots. Like, who knows? The only value that that, re- that, that review gave is that it just gave me an, an authentic, shocked face to use as a thumbnail when we upload this to, to YouTube. Hmm. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, no. Not enough action and slow-paced movie. Like, this person barely has a command of a sentence and is like, not enough action and slow-paced movie. Amazing. 
absolutely horrible, walked out of the theater about an hour in, lots of random action scenes that don't seem to connect to the plot, a boring waste of time. Thank you, Caleb from Oklahoma. Yeah. Bang. Okay, let's let's break let's talk about this for a second. An hour into the movie, you see a son watch his father get killed in front of him, and then he kills a would-be assassin by or not kills him, but he cuts off his his nose, and then he runs through a town that's getting pillaged, and then it flashes forward to him pillaging a town in a like twenty minute one shot take of just like the most brutal fight scene ever. And that's not enough action for you? Really? Like, what is your standard of action? Like, are you are you watching, like, the Jason Statham? What's the Jason Statham movie where he ejects adrenaline into him oh, for, like, oh, two yeah, hours? Oh, dude. Uh, fuck, what's it called? Oh, man, that movie rules, too. It's such like a... That, like, that yeah. That must be your standard of film, if if, if this isn't enough action. How, how about this one? Not great. Since when were Vikings Muslim? They had to go ahead and ruin Vikings by making them Muslim. Pretty fucking weird. I guess it's somewhat entertaining. Three and a half stars. Okay, I have a. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what now? Like, what I now? <laughs> what? Is, what is the Muslim take? Dog, I, first of all, for the record, I don't know that 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 Islam was invented. This take place in like eight hundred yeah, or nine hundred. I'm, I'm I don't fairly know confident Islam there was wasn't created. any Islam yet. And dude, okay, you got you got to know that this guy has literally no understanding of what islam is like anything involving like foreign people and like weird shit to him like anything spiritual that is weird to him is instantly muslim stuff like that's just how he he lives his life is like that dude would definitely walk into a synagogue and be like god damn look at all this muslim shit going on (laughs) god that sucks he he saw them take mushrooms and start tripping out and he was like this must this must be islam this is isis this This is isis yeah gosh so bad dude how who i I walked out halfway through i have never done that in my life really this was the movie that oh i why am i doing this to myself why am i reading anonymous one-star reviews of the Northman on... I, I don't know why I do this to myself. It's so good. Again, this movie has a really short act one that, like, gets you straight into the film. And then really early in act two, there's, like, deaths and violence. So if your thing is, like, I need movies to move fast and have violence, like, this movie does Bro, that. in the first, like, like really the first well. 20 minutes of this movie, I was like, oh my gosh, they must slow this movie down a ton because there's no way you can keep this pace up for two hours. And then they did. Exactly. And then they did. It was awesome. I oh fuck these people. Like the internet was yeah, a mistake, bro. I, the internet was a mistake. Like I didn't need to know what it, Brad yeah. in Oklahoma thought of the Northman. I didn't. I thought I did. I didn't. Like <laughs> uh, that makes me so sad, dude. As like somebody who cares about writing at all or like cares about anything in life, like that makes me dude, so sad. Dude, that's the like, It makes me sad. It makes me just have no faith that like we can ever have anything nice. And and it's no wonder why, like, great artists end up living in, like, enclaves of incredibly rich, snobby art people. You know what I mean? Because they just don't even want to be exposed yeah. to that. Like, no one that... You don't want Brad in Oklahoma Rob, running around. Rob Edgers doesn't want to live in Tulsa because he might run into this fucking guy who's like, yeah, but, like, instead of, like, you know, all them fucking camera th- shit, you could have just had some titties, you know? That would have been sick. Yeah, so despite what Brad in Oklahoma had to say, uh, I I loved this movie. Uh, Like I said, I kind of think I hurt my own uh, viewing of it a little bit, but all in all, I 
Really loved it. I think I'm going to see it again very shortly. And I think it's going to be like the definitive piece of, you know, Norse Viking themed media, uh, which is really in vogue right now. So, yeah, all in all, man, I'm going to give it a strong uh, 8.5. I think that probably is going to end up more in the 9-ish category once I see it totally uninterrupted with no distractions. But it's an, it's an incredible movie. Yeah. Probably the best thing I've seen this year. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of – I'm going to rate it a little bit higher. I think, to me, this has a minimum ranking of, like, well over 9, like 9.5. And, and if I watch it again, I feel like it could be a 9 – it could be closer to a 10. Like, it just – I, I watched this movie. I was immediately just impressed by everything about it: acting, cinematography, like the set design, the costume design, the act. You know, it just, it's all it's all it's all incredible. And so, I've watched some clips of it again and some analysis of it again, and I I just can't think of any one thing that makes me think this is anything worse than a nine and. If I think of anything, I'll, I'll let you know. But I this very well could be a 10. I, I've listened to some critics that have said that this is a closer to like a top 10 or 15 or 20 movie of all time wow. for them. Yeah, I've heard some, I've heard some texts like that's that. Crazy. No, I don't either. I don't either. If someone told me this is their favorite movie, I'd believe it. It's it, Dude, I'd be interested to see what the Academy does with this because I can't think of many movies that are nominated or are, have one best movie that are this violent. Um I think this could get the Dune treatment where it, get, it, it gets nominated for six awards and wins two or three of the technical ones. Um, but it, it very well could be nominated and win Best Picture. I would love that. What a, what a great message I think that would send. So that would be rad. Yeah. Well, Andy, once again, thank you. And I just hope we continue to see more movies come out like this year. I know we've got uh, our Murder, Murder on the Orient Express pod coming up and we've also got our best villains pod then after that we've got our doctor strange podcast i'm excited about um hopefully we get more movies like this that kind of come out of nowhere and surprise us with their um you know just kind of like overall storytelling and hopefully some of these young directors continue to take notice and do make make some it's it's easy it's it's easy to shit on new hollywood and I, i will not stop anyone from doing that but there are some lights in that darkness so keep keep doing your thing roger eggers we're huge fans once again, this is Novel Discourse. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe and give us a rating. We greatly appreciate that. As always, this is Sam. I'm Andy. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.